I'm John. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast, Extraordinariness. Where we explore the motivations behind ordinary people's extraordinary accomplishments. This week I interviewed Jonathan Rankin, an old friend, former runner and ultra-endurance cyclist. And we see what we can add to our extraordinary toolkit by hearing about his two entries into the transcontinental bike race. So my name is Jonathan Rankin. I spent a long time um, as a rower, maybe eight weeks. And then in the last six years, I decided I was going to try my hand at ultra endurance cycling. Normally rowers are obviously quite big lumpers. How tall are you? Just a fraction under six, seven. And when I was rowing, I think I was probably over a hundred kilos. So. Big lumper, as, as most <laughs> would say. When I finished with rowing, I realised I wasn't going to get any further with it. Was it a case of, well, if I can go and get into the GB squad and go to the Olympics, I'll carry on? Or So when we were rowing at Molesley, I felt like I had been in that environment where that was what you probably needed to do to like mm. go and try and go into the GB squad and kind of really like be really successful at rowing. And I felt like I had given that as good a go as I could mm. at that time. So Jonathan retires from rowing and with a bunch of mates from university they decide that uh, they'll get on their bikes and they're just going to go for a big cycle uh, across Europe. I think we cycled from Amsterdam to Berlin and then Prague and then ended up in Vienna and really we just bombed it for a day and then got horrendously drunk and then <laughs> rinsed and repeated for three weeks. And we did that one year and then some other friends, they heard about it. And so the following year, they decided that they'd do the same thing again. And this time though, they started from Venice and they headed off down the Dalmatian coast. And it was during that trip that we were cycling up, um, I can't remember what the mountain is, but the, the place is called the Bay of Cotor, which I think is in Montenegro. And I had sort of heard about the transcontinental race. I hadn't really given it any thought and we were cycling through this thing and I, I, saw, I, I saw this car, it said like TCR4 maybe, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. Like We're obviously where the race is and we cycled up over this pass and stopped in this cafe and it just happened to be that one of the checkpoints for this race was, was there and chatted to a couple of people and kind of in my head I thought, Oh, yeah, I can do that. So what is the, the TCR then? What is the race itself? How has it made up? Transcontinental race, I think they say it's got 10 rules. The concept is that you cycle from one side of Europe to the other side of Europe with four checkpoints in between. Um, the checkpoints sometimes have a small amount of road that you have to cover, so it takes you up to the top of a mountain. Right or it takes you through a particularly remote place. Uh, in between those checkpoints, you make your own route, you plan your own route. The only rules other than that are things like it's completely unsupported. So you can't have somebody call ahead and book hotels. Right. You are carrying all of your stuff. Does it sound like your cup of tea? I mean, I much preferred the sound of the first bike trip where it was a couple of hours a day and then lots of drinking in the yeah. evening. <laughs> yeah, this does uh, sound a little bit different. But And he um, applied for a place, applied twice though and didn't get a place. So it's a lottery is how you get your place on this, oh, okay. this race. 
And they also have a pairs entry, which is easier to get a place. And I suspect that's probably because going as a pair to me sounds like it would be much harder. Do you know what I mean? Why would it be harder as a pair? Well, because when you're on your own and you want to go slow, you go slow. But when you've got a pair, you're just going to get... You basically have to think about someone else. It's much easier in life when you're just on your own. You can just... Is that just me? I think that's the male mentality, John. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> James is, is very calm and he probably knows how to manage me as like a very <laughs> um, like single-minded person. So we got on very well before and I think I mean overall I think we got on very well when we were cycling so did you train together before after university I, I went and worked in, in, in Japan and we applied when I was in Japan and we got placed when I was in Japan and so I I was spending my time running around the running track so I do a lap I do some sit-ups and then I do a lap and then I do push-ups and do a lap and I'd do some burpees or whatever and I just did that every day running yeah okay because Japan is just so difficult to get out of just so many traffic lights yeah, yeah that it just was never worth cycling during the week right so I would do that running around the track during the week and then on a Friday evening I'd pack my bags up onto the bike and cycle the kind of 110 kilometers out of the city get as far as I could out of Tokyo and sleep wherever I ended up sleeping. Um, like in a hotel or just no, on the side of the road? No, uh, side of the road, like um, petrol station or like just behind a petrol station or like outside public toilet or... Um, you know how to pick all the spots. Yeah, like <laughs> just where, you know, if it looks like... If it looked like there was a little bit of shelter and it wasn't going to be too busy with cars, I would just roll over and put um, put the mat down and just sleep there. I could see you shaking your head. I mean, <laughs> so just for fun, on his weekends, he would just cycle out of the city. See, that bit I get. I'm with you, though. It kind of loses me. a petrol station. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is dedication beyond anything I've, I've ever heard. Yeah. And so I would basically do that Friday, Saturday, and then try and get back into Tokyo by Sunday night. Um, and, and fun? You enjoyed it? Like, I have always enjoyed going places yeah, yeah. with cycling. Like, I'm not particularly interested in going out for a Sunday ride or, you know, like yeah, with yeah, yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Like, I yeah. like the travel. Yeah. And really, that's like the kind of thing, a competitive person where... You don't like just cycling round in circles and you like going somewhere. There's sort of a limited number of places. It's a bit um, different to rowing where you never get anywhere. <laughs> you put in a lot of work to go up and down the river, you know, um, or up and down Dorney Lake or something like that. I mean, like you never get anywhere on rowing. <laughs> yeah, I think rowing was... I, I loved the like people when yeah. I was rowing. I I loved the like camaraderie of it. Odd then to go from that rowing community because I, I feel like you did. I loved the people and I loved the, like getting up at five thirty in the morning was fine when you turned up and then there's like eight blokes and it's all good fun or sixteen of us and we're racing each other. Yeah. And to, so to then to kind of get on your bike, I suppose you, what you're saying is that for you then it's just something totally different. It's no longer about the physical exertion. It's about seeing places and travelling. Yeah, it was just it was. 
it it really was completely different. It, I think there are some real crossovers from which I had like learnt some kind of fundamental things which I'd learnt as a rower, which I then took into the cycling. But I think I also was a completely different, let's call it athlete mm. between the two. I think the kind of crossovers were that I was absolutely regimented. I think like rowers are very good at being regimented. They're, they're not getting drunk after a race, like yeah. every race or a hard session on a Saturday. They're not in the pub. They're no. like feet up playing PlayStation or watching a film or whatever. Like it's, it's like rowing is your whole life. And I took that into that idea of cycling. Um, I think rowing also teaches you that like getting up at half five and, and doing exercises is like quite normal. And like, if you can kind of get into that, that rowing is all about hard work. So bef- before rowing, what, what got you into rowing? What, um, did you row at school or was it? Yeah. So I went to school in Edinburgh. There was a guy called Callum and I was sort of friends with him. I was not really doing any sport and he was like, oh, I've joined this rowing club. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I'll come down. And I came down and I, I just enjoyed, I enjoyed the people. It felt like I'd gone through school and it was quite difficult to find people that I like really saw eye to eye with. And yeah, then like yeah. at the rowing club, it really felt like everyone. It's because everyone's as tall as you. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> eye to eye. And then, so take us to the start line then of the first time you first time did the transcontinental race. So I, I did that training in Japan. I came back to the UK in April. The race is, it starts the last weekend, weekend in July. I think James and I went for a weekend cycle ride just to check we were a similar speed. Um, he was a bit... What would you have done if you weren't? <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll go in front, you go behind, okay, right, you yeah. go in front and I'll go behind. Um, and I think there was probably enough time if it had really come down to it, we could have like knuckled down and one of us could got quicker. Um, James was a bit quicker, but he stopped more often. I yeah. was a bit slower and just didn't want to stop at all. And so together we went into somebody that didn't know <laughs> Didn't want to stop and was quite quick. Yeah. Um, so we were in, in that uh, transcontinental race. We started in, and I cannot say this, but it's like, uh, I think it's Gerhardsbrücken. That's a very good attempt at this. Yeah. So you, we started there. Which country is that in? It's in Belgium. Oh, okay. That's the wrong side of Europe from what I was imagining. I was, for some reason, I'm imagining that you're cycling west. The second time I did it, it was okay. the opposite oh, yeah. way around. Yeah. Um, so that year it started in Belgium. So we rock up at the start line and there's about 250 pe- by people. Um, about, usually about 20 or 30 pair, 20 pairs maybe. Uh-huh. Um, some are mixed, some are men, some are women. Um, and then everyone else is, is solo. And what happens is you do a lap of the, the town the yeah. town all come out and banging drums and they're waving torches. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you go up the the moor, which is this very famous one day classic climb. Um, 
it's narrow, it's cobbled, and I think there's even a bollard in the middle of the road. Nice. So you go up there and you, you get over the top of it, and then you basically are just into the night. I think it starts at about 10 p.m., so it's, it's black. For a little while, everyone goes in the same direction, and then people kind of spread out as you, you have picked your own route to the first checkpoint. Um, and I remember going round the, the neutralised loop, going up the mur, which everyone says is really hard work. But actually, I turned to James and I said, have we done the climb yet? Like, we've we done the climb, or have mm. we not? Are we, what's going on here? Is this us? Like, do we have to follow people? We set off into the night and we had decided that we were kind of going to try and keep our tinder dry. And we didn't want to kind of blow up in a 10 day race or mm. 11, 12 day race. So we decided we were going to stop for, and sleep for two hours on the first night, which is against what all the fast people do, really. Yes, he already, he's lost me there. Oh, like, first night of the race. That sounds awful, I'm not going to lie. Um, I didn't realise it was a kind of just keep going until you drop type scenario. Non-stop. Yeah, anytime you're sleeping, you're losing, losing time. time. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is because of my post-children PTSD from lack of sleep, <laughs> but the idea of a whole night... I, I'd, have, I'd, have, I'd have been like, yeah, we're going to stop. Uh, six, seven hours... But, yeah. Wouldn't it inhibit your performance? Surely it's better to take the break to then be quicker the next day. Well, or are these people trained to such... I mean, it's, it's beyond me, John. Yeah, let's see how they got on. But you guys decided to have a, have a kit. Yeah, a little rest, you know, just better to kind of get straight into the rhythm of cycling all day, sleeping a little bit, cycling all day. Yeah. Um, it was completely pointless because we were at the side of the road and you've got 250 cyclists coming <laughs> by you, so... <laughs> We didn't sleep at all, but um, that's probably one thing I learned the next time. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that's how what a day looks like, is it? A normal day on the bike? Normal day on the bike. So you wake up. Uh, for us that year, it was you wake up at 5, and we'd be off by about 5.20. We'd basically try and cycle all of the time until midnight, like as much mm. as we could. There were days where I would feel terrible. Three or four days in, I felt three, maybe three days in, I felt terrible. James felt amazing, so he just sat at the front for twelve hours, twenty hours, you know yeah. that sort of distance. And I just held on for dear life. And then the next day, he was feeling terrible. At that point, we were in the lead of the pairs, and I think we'd gone through three check. We'd gone through two checkpoints. So even with stopping the first night, you still... Yeah. yeah, so we were, so we went through into the first checkpoint, which was after about eight, 700k. We were in ninth overall, which is, was the highest the pair had got that mm. to that point. And we went through the next checkpoint, ninth again, I think. And then the, by the time we were approaching the third checkpoint, that was when James said, I'm I'm really struggling. Like something's wrong. Like I just have no energy. So we decided to stop in a hotel, have a proper rest. I think he was struggling to breathe. Have a proper rest. See if he could kind of get back on top of it. That morning, our alarms went off, and he said I'd heard him coughing all night. And our alarms went off, and he was like, Johnny, I'm going to. I'm not going to go on, like, I've, I feel really terrible. He was like, you go on, you go on ahead. 
Um, and so having been in this like little safe environment of me and James in a pair, mm. I remember cycling from that hotel and thinking, God, I'm alone. Like, mm. I'm just, this is me. Right. I'm but I mean, all your rides in Tokyo had been alone. Yeah, so, completely But you still alone. felt, you still felt yeah. that sort of aloneness. Yeah, yeah. Com- completely. I remember it so clearly, like, feeling, God, I'm, I'm alone now. Yeah. So I cycled all of that day and that was going to be us hitting the the third checkpoint in Poland and the, the third checkpoint had this almost dead straight sort of 16-17% climb up to it it had been a Nazi holiday resort nice. at the top of a mountain and they had kind of made it into a sort of ski centre type thing it's very industrial um, so I got up to the top of the climb and to the checkpoint where there's there's usually some volunteers, volunteers, the race directors there if you're at the front of the race to kind of like, yeah, just I guess be a be a yeah. be a voice, um, and she she said, I like you know where's James? I said James is James is ill. Like I probably you know either we're scratch I'm going to just finish I know we're having to scratch we're, right so you can't complete it yeah. you have to go through the checkpoints together yeah so I was like I know they, they said I think we're going to have to disqualify you and I said I know we're getting disqualified here um we'll I'll just continue on as you know as, as though I'm racing but just without you yeah. know I'll just do my best type thing what would you have done I mean it's really interesting because what this says about him is that it wasn't necessarily for the accolade. Yeah. And this is the sense that I got when he was talking about all these training rides that he was doing. It's, he's doing it for himself. So he's yeah. still happy to complete it for his own satisfaction as opposed to doing it for the, for the medal, for the time. Yes. Yeah. Which is, is quite unusual sometimes when people are that competitive. Yeah, yeah. It's the way it should be, though, isn't it? I suppose we should do the challenge because we want to do it. Because ultimately, no one cares. No, you're right. Like in the long run, <laughs> no one cares. No. Okay. No, I understand. But it is still pretty impressive yeah, I agree, that he was prepared to crack on disqualified, regardless. I completely agree. Yeah. I sat and had a little bit of food, and a little bit of food being like you know like two or three or four slices of cheesecake, a couple of bottles of Coke, five Mars bars, <laughs> that sort of. I got a stamp and I remember just going off down this and I was actually passing through the same town as James was back, James was. And so when I was approaching that town again, I texted him saying, you okay? And he's like, yeah, I've been in hospital. Um, it turns out I've got pneumonia. I thought, I thought, well, I'm in 15th now or 16th now. Um, now there's just one of you. I can go as hard as I can and see what happens. I crossed the line, I think, in in eighth or ninth place. So, having your teammate pull out the race, which means you can't then get a proper time, was that something that then motivated you to go on and finish it, or is it? Because I think a lot of people would go, "Oh, well, what's the point?" You know. Yeah, I think it's interesting. The first time I did the transcontinental, I saw it as something I just wanted to finish. Yeah. And after about three days, it feels like you've been run over by a truck. 
yeah. everything is sore. Um, and so you're basically just managing pain the whole time. And so I just was checking off day by day by day. And I knew, you know, if I, if I finished the hundredth, I was still disqualified, right? Yeah, so yeah, it's okay. a bit of pressure off and I was just going as hard as I could. So it's almost freeing then in that case. Yeah. To not have to worry about the time. That's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so then you, you finished that one. Finished that one. And the, the, somebody said to me, um, you're going to do another, like within about a day, they said, you're going to do another one. You, you know, you finished ninth, you're going to do another one. I think I was the highest person that hadn't done it before. I said, I don't know. And they said, oh, you either say instantly, yes, I'm going to do it. Or no, I'm never doing that again. And came back to the UK. I had very, very swollen ankles and feet um, just from use. I'd also been knocked off at one point in Austria and I'd broken a rib and I had a 18 inch cut across my chest. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd be going back. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> I love how these, um, what seem to sound like quite serious injuries are just an afterthought, just popped in at the end. Doesn't talk about yeah. that at all when he's describing Well, to be itself. fair, um, he did give himself a good month <clears throat> off of cycling. And uh, told everyone he wasn't going to get on his bike. And he tells me then that he goes out for a bike ride in Edinburgh. And as soon as he's leaving Edinburgh, one of his mates comes the other way in his car and is like, yeah, busted. <laughs> and at this point, he decides he's going to go for it. So he uh, gets another place and plans out nine months worth of training. I decided I was going to give it everything I had, pushing myself and like discipline and all of that kind of thing into realms, which I had sort of never never really got to when I was rowing, mapped out, you know, if I felt like I was this fit at the moment, how, you know, what's my baseline mm. now? How hard can I end up going? If I want to go on like a, take some holiday and, and like do a couple of weeks of cycling really seriously, where can I do that? And so I mapped it out. I probably planned out six, worth, six weeks worth of training um, and I just sort of thought, well, I'm going to do this at 100%. Over the nine months, I cycled 27,000 kilometers, about 100K a day. Right. Um, I think long distance cyclists tend to not, um, they, they don't do enough during the week and they do mountains at the weekend. Yeah. They get injured, they get too tired. My ethos, and I think this was brought from rowing, is like, I'm going to work every single day of the week and no, there's not going to be a standout day uh, in terms of like, you know, it's, it's going to be a grind for nine months rather than like living for the weekend type thing. Mm. Um, so I basically wake up, uh, my alarm went off at 5.15. I'd be on the bike from then until maybe like half eight and then I'd just nip into work, sit at the desk, working away and then dead on five, I would be out the door, some days back on the bike, um, some days on the like indoor bike. Mm. So Jonathan found himself in a bit of a groove with his training. For instance, my mum said, I've never seen you do anything like this before, like rowing, I was always like either 
complaining about the training program, complaining about being too tired, complaining about this, like finding something where this, it was like I just had, abs I, I say I had magic, like it was magic, right? Because I've tried to do it again since. And there was just the combination of situation and motivation was just what was able to elevate it. Yeah, because that's hard because it's boring. It's boring. I just watched a lot of Netflix and listened to a yeah. lot of audiobooks. And yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think I'm good with, I'm good with boring things. Okay. Um, like yeah. I'm good at just turning my brain off. You, you don't cycle for 20 hours a day for 10 days without being able to turn your brain off. So you did this pretty brutal training regime and you got a place. You got a place. And you're in the solos this time. I was in the solos. I probably was definitely one of the favourites. There was probably five or six people that could, um, that were like really in with a chance of winning it. Um, and how did you feel you measured up? So you said you, you wrote a training programme, you know, how fit I am now, where I'm going to get to. How did you feel you did on that plan when you arrived at the start of the race? I was probably ahead of the plan. Yeah. Um, I wasn't, I don't think I had the raw speed of some of the other people and which basically meant on the first day on the start line I was riding and I was putting a bit more effort than I would want to put in and I just watched two or three people that I knew were going to be quick just basically ride away from me and I thought mm. I can't keep up with them but I thought well I'll just ride them down and if that happens over one day or ten days then that's fine mm. I'm just going to dig in and just go slow and steady. And this time you raced from uh, east to west? And this time, start was in Bulgaria. Checkpoint one was still in Bulgaria. Um, checkpoint two was in Serbia. So they had two checkpoints really close to each other. Um, checkpoint three was in northern Italy, I think. Mm. Checkpoint four was in the Alps, like Alpe d'Huez. And the finish was in uh, Brittany. It was about 4,000k race. Um, I had done a huge amount of route planning and research and I knew, certainly for those first 1,500 kilometres, I felt like I knew the route off by mm. heart almost. Like I, I remembered looking at places on Google Maps and like I was riding on rails really. And I got to the first checkpoint and I had strangely watched all of these people cycle away from me and I over the first maybe 300k I had like clocked off a few went got past them again got to the first checkpoint definitely didn't feel like I had passed everyone and I said oh how am I doing and they said oh you're 20 minutes behind the leader you're number two during these races you carry these uh, GPS trackers GPS tracker basically pings up your location every five or ten minutes and there are a group of people that watch these races and they're called dot, dot watchers. Basically they watch your dot, little ping on a map, snake its way across Europe and so it's like watching a really really slow cycling yeah. race. And so I'd have friends that would like be watching and they would like check back in the morning and you'd be here and then 280k later you are you know they check back in the evening and they're like oh he's got 
you know, he's crossed the country or across, yeah. he's cycled up Serbia. Um, and so I hadn't checked the track at that point. I thought, just relax and, and just get into it. And I think I didn't check the tracker at all the next day. And we got over the top of one of the a big climb in Serbia where they had like forced us to go over it. Mm. It was gravel, which then turned into mountain biking. Bear in mind that you're on a road bike. Mm. So mostly when it gets really mountain mountain biking y you're just off walking. It's yeah, safe, yeah, yeah. it's safer to and walk you've got the bike your kit up. On your bike as well, I guess. Yeah. You? Safer to walk the bike up. And um I checked the tracker on the way down from this climb and I saw that I was in second place and the first place was um, still in this hotel and so I rolled into the hotel and I, I was expecting to see him come straight back out again as I got in and I arrived into it, there was a wedding going on in the hotel and the bride was there and everything, it was, everyone was all dressed nicely and then I come in crusty from you know dried in sweat yeah just cycled 1200 k or whatever i walk up the stairs and bjorn who was the leader was walking towards me in a clean t-shirt and a towel and i thought what is going on here this is not what i expected i thought maybe he'd just done this 800 k ride in one go and he was just having a rest and then he would go again and i was getting my stamp done and Anna, who's the race director, said, Bjorn is, um, he's going to stop now. Um, he's got terrible saddle sores. Um, and at that point, I thought, well, I didn't want to be in the lead at this point, but I'm quite happy that I am in yeah. the lead. Got my stamp. I remember cycling off and thinking, well, I am going to try and ride away from everyone now. And right. We'll just see. So Jonathan seems to have a very different mindset this time round. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> From what we were talking about on this last attempt. Yeah, exactly. But it's serving him pretty well, by the sense. Yeah. And I guess that's the power of setting a goal, isn't it? It's all about, okay, this is the goal. And as a lot of people might set off for something. And I remember watching uh, the show about Cracknell and uh, Ben Fogel rowing the Atlantic and how they had competing goals and that caused a lot of tension. But I think that happens even on solo events, that if you haven't set a goal and said what is important, you know, do I want to win? Do I want to finish? Do I want to enjoy myself? Yeah, you need to have that in mind to keep you motivated throughout the course. Yeah. That night I could tell that it was getting very stormy. It got to about eight o'clock and it was incredibly heavy rain, lightning, thunder all around me. And I was on the, these kind of plains in the middle of Serbia. And I remember thinking, I don't want to get struck by lightning. I don't want to lose this race. I don't really know what the right answer of, should I just stop under a bridge and let this pass over or should I like keep going? And I ended up keeping going because it felt like it was just far enough away that I wasn't going to get struck by lightning. And I remember stopping. Was it wet? Was it raining? You, you yeah, were, you yeah. couldn't even okay. see it was so yeah. wet. Um, it was t torrential rain, like standing water, 
six inches of standing water on the road type thing. And I pulled into this little town, got these huge, two huge burger things. And I was like completely sodden through. And I, um, I, I was texting some people saying, oh, well, this is, you know, put a dampener on things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I waited for about an hour and a half until it kind of subsided. And then um, I cycled off. And it just, as soon as it subsided and I was out cycling, it was just rain again. Really, again, incredibly heavy rain. So I pulled in, slept in a hotel. Thought, I'm going to try and dry all my stuff, set the heaters on full gas. I told the person in the hotel I'd be out at three o'clock in the morning. Basically from that first night uh, where I tried to dry everything off, everything basically stayed wet from then through the next night, through the next night, and then halfway through the next day. I got rained on at bad times three o'clock till six o'clock rained on, which meant that my feet were wet for another seven hours, mm. weren't able to dry them. So then they started the next morning off wet and by lunchtime they had dried, but then they just got wet again at mm. three, two yeah. o'clock. That last six hours, I was basically counting 10 kilometer, five mm. kilometer stints. I was counting kilometers because my feet were so sore. I got into this hotel and this was after kind of two days of my feet being wet, got into the hotel and I sat on this, I tried to take my clothes off and get in the shower. And they were too sore that when I took one foot off the ground, I couldn't. So I just remember sitting on the bed, lifting my foot up to look at it. And it was like, it was ghostly white. It wasn't cold, it was just ghostly white. Um, and I think I posted a photo on Instagram and I had a friend that is in the army and he texted back the next morning. He was like, mate, you've got trench foot. Uh, so I thought I would just um, Google trench foot images and I really wish I hadn't and I don't want to be alone in it. So I thought I'd show you. Oh my God. Okay, so by ghostly white, he's really not exaggerating. It's not a good look, is it? And, you know... I, I mean, I can see it's gone totally white because of, obviously, the, the water. Mm. But are there any sort of implications of this it's moving forward? It's exceptionally painful, oh, as I understand it. I gritted it out for that next day and that next night. We're cycling along at about 9pm 9, 9 again. I thought they've just dried out. I've not got them wet. Um, perfect. And I can see these huge storm clouds rolling in again pulled off, um, pulled off, slept in like the back of somebody's ginormous ski chalet, just underneath the, you know, the, the back door, yeah, yeah, veranda thing. It was all locked up, up for summer. And I took my shoes off and they were still this kind of like ghostly white it was basically the skin was rotting and it was dying um and i thought i'll won't get them wet again it'll you know i'll wait for this set my alarm for three hours woke up pouring rain set for an hour woke up pouring rain i think i did another two or three hours 
uh, two hours after that, so six hours total. And it was like drizzling. And I thought, if I don't go now, I'm just handing this race away. Like I can't, it's better to like go out guns blazing and maybe yeah. don't finish because, you know, really did want to win it. Like I, um, Having already completed the distance, I guess your priorities changed. Change, yeah. yeah. Because it wasn't just about finishing for me. It was mm. about trying to like, try and, you know, at least get a high up place. Um, and I knew I had the, the mileage to, to win it. Like I knew I wasn't going to be able to finish at that speed or, mm. or like, you know, with these feet. And I took my shoes off and the bottom had all blistered. And so when we were rowing, we would get these on your, fin- your, your hands from the oars, these calluses, and they could turn into blisters. And then you get them wet and they turn into this like white dead skin, which you can kind of like peel off. So I took my shoes off and I sent a message to the race director saying I'm scratching. My feet have disintegrated. So, I mean, it, I guess it comes down to what we said about setting your goals. But where do you stand on the go out in a blaze of, you know, go out in a blaze of glory? Or like? Oh, this is heartbreaking listening to this because the first time round... He, he was just in it to, to complete. And he's dedicated nine months of his life yeah. to get into peak physical condition. Not only that, he was, he was in the lead. Yeah. And it's not that he wasn't able to do it. He's done the distance before and he knows he's gone back stronger, fitter, faster. It was the conditions that kind of, which is the lottery that you're up against. That's the gamble. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just going to get a train to wherever I can get, get back to the world from. And I was trying to work out where the, you know, I was like lying in this train station on my camping mat and I had my feet up, shoes off. And about three hours later, I tried putting my shoes on to, to go and my feet had like swelled up to giant size. Right. Couldn't Just get your... Couldn't get the shoes in, you know, shoes which were on the tightest setting with room to spare were now completely full with giant swollen feet um i mean it, i basically didn't wasn't able to wear shoes for about three months so that, i mean that's that's a tough way to finish i suppose when you've had that year of training mm. but i think i understand the well, i'm going to go for it you know rather than oh, i'm going to just try and manage this and finish you know 50th or something yeah so um, when you when you when that happens on the race, it sounds pretty brutal. Like they're just like, okay, make your way back to the world. There's no no one comes and gets you. It's just no, like... Yeah, no, nobody comes and gets you. Nobody. They'll they'll basically you'll send a text message, you'll call and say I'm I'm stopping, and they say, good, you know, good. I hope you get home okay, and right. if you come back next year, we'll see you next year. So um, you've done two of these events, both of which have been really difficult and have had difficult bits in it. And the question that we always ask, we've asked all of our guests, is uh, the, the pit and the peak of the event. So what's the, the lowest bit, but what's also the best bit? Because we've heard a lot about the really tough bits. Um, so I, I would imagine the lowest bit is having to stop because your feet have fallen apart. Yeah, the... Actually, that's probably not the lowest bit. Okay, this is why we ask questions. Because you, you've, uh, <laughs> by that point, you've, you've, you've resigned yourself to it. So 
the lowest bit is when in, in a race, in that second race, the lowest bit was like uh, the 48 hours before of like putting your brain through a ringer mm. and it's very tiring doing that. I kind of have this like visualization that I do of, I have a box in my head and I can just put stuff away in that box. And because these races, you're constantly managing difficulty and making decisions. And so I put those sorts of things in this box and that's it done. That so like, like my feet hurt, right, I'm going to put that in the box. Yeah. Okay. Or like I've, I've lost my sunglasses. Okay. Put it in the box. Don't matter. It's like all of those little difficult things, niggles, like it could be your bum's sore, it could be whatever it is. Mm. But the feet were, was so much that like that box was absolutely full of feet. Like there was no, <laughs> there was no, no room in there for like anything else. Yeah. And so I was in Austria, I was, or wherever I was, I was cycling, I think it was Austria, I was cycling on the equivalent of the A1. Now it was legal for bikes. There is no way a bicycle should have been on it. Yeah. But you're racing and you have to think, I'm doing this to race, not to go on holiday yeah. and see the sights. And so big trucks are going past your shoulder, close enough that you could easily put your hand out and touch them. Yeah. 100 k's an hour. And normally if that box wasn't full of my feet disintegrating, I would have been able to just go, that's fine, it will change. But like that box was already full. And so there were like things like that, that were, that were what cracks you. Yeah. I have a few techniques of like, how do I empty that box out of stuff again? Okay. Like normally on these races, you are, if you're at the front, of them you're stopping for maximum of 10 to 15 minutes every five hours and which includes like going to the loo um buying your food making sure your water bottles are filled up doing any other life admin that you need to do sun cream wash your sunglasses uh you're eating service station food mm. and most of service station food is is revolved around chocolate and so i know that like if i feel terrible if i feel like that box is like completely full up the best thing to do is to like stop for a quick but real food pizza pasta anything like that mm -hmm. like and you can tell when it's going to be quick you know like you can say i'm in a race here could you make that as quick as possible <laughs> and they come out with it and you just shovel it in and then go and that makes everything so much better is just like a little bit of real food <clears throat> so it's really interesting because my friend uses a really similar analogy she is um she studies psychology and has gone into um dog training and uses a lot of um animal oh, okay. evolutionary psychology in in her approach and she went to a conference a few years ago and and talked about how animals but also very applicable according to my friend to husbands and children um <laughs> can become overwhelmed which causes dysregulation and they she calls it about filling up the sink and it's exactly the same analogy that, that johnny's using here in filling up his box and that you know but when you start overflowing that's when children or animals or, or husbands, husbands become dysregulated <laughs> and you need to find different ways which is unique to each individual 
to, how she calls it, drain the sink. I think with husbands, it's probably nearly always pizza, pasta or burgers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's phenomenal (laughs) how he's got this, like, very kind of real psychological approach that is used in, in all different forms of therapy and training. Did you spend time before the race thinking about these, like, mental sort of just tricks or techniques that you can use because that's really interesting something I've not thought about I'm doing marathon disorder and I haven't thought about this stuff but that's really interesting yes I, I just practice it's just what has, what has evolved in yeah. my head you, you know it's going to happen so you've started to come up with ways of yeah. dealing with things um, so the worst part is where your box is full and you just are putting things on top of it and you're like oh this is downhill now mm. um Best part is like stupid things like when I was with James, I remember cycling crack of dawn and we had James's phone speaker was good. So he like had stupid music on. I remember like cycling up this big mountain, you know, hand in the air, sort of singing along to these stupid things. That was a good moment. And I think a lot of these like good moments are on reflection of how ridiculous they are. The first time round, I was cycling somewhere in Montenegro or Macedonia or or somewhere like that. And towns or cities get very, very like um, rough. Out of the center of these beautiful places, they get really rough. And I pulled around the back of a supermarket at midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And um, I remember like standing there completely naked in the back of the supermarket, kind of just like padding around, trying to like wash everything and, you know, like clean, clean your armpits and like wipe your arms and whatever. I remember thinking like, there's literally huge blocks of flats next to me. Like they're all just looking down. (laughs) And then I got a text, like my mum and dad would, um, basically my dad got completely addicted to watching my darts. So they would go to bed when I was, went to bed and they'd wake up at the crack of dawn and basically he would watch it all day the slowest race of, yeah it's um, like watching test cricket though exactly, I imagine yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, so he I got text me saying did you really sleep in the back of a supermarket <laughs> and I was like yeah and it was as bad as it looked on Google Maps so I wonder if often the, the high points on these things are not kind of connected to how amazing that individual moment is, but how far they are from the low points. Probably, yeah. You know? So like going up the hill when you're feeling good and there's a little bit of music on, like normally that's like, well, yeah. you know, but it's way better than, you know, something that else that's been happening. Yeah. It's interesting you've talked about those little, um, like, uh, mental tricks, but are those the things, so what advice would you give someone thinking about doing something similar? So not necessarily a long distance bike ride, but, um, you know, just something a bit extraordinary. So I think there's incredible value for a habit. So whether that habit, I think that comes from doing something every, like every day. For me, that was exercising. I knew, I knew I would be up at the crack of dawn every day. I stuck to it like absolute glue. I think that's the first thing I would recommend anyone do is, is just like the, the repetition of something is hugely valuable second thing is to make that plan like have a goal and understand like what do you need to what sorts of things do you need to do to accomplish that thing whether that just be finishing or or trying to win so do you think that um 
had you not have been introduced to that rowing club age 11 that you'd be doing this sort of stuff now I'm just wondering if it's the if it's the rowing and if it's the kind of indoctrination into that training every day that I mean rowing I love rowing but it is boring you yeah, just do yeah. the same action over and over again yeah um, I wonder if that's kind of like a, a catalyst I think it probably was I think there's so many things where a lot of people would be like oh you can't get up at 5.15 you can't your alarm shouldn't go off at 5.15 people shouldn't be awake at that yeah. point and um, I think having some experience where it is absolutely normal there's yeah. you, if you said to Aurora oh, we're not going to train at 5.15 they'd be like what? Yeah. And I think having that like complete normality um, over like people row people row on top of their normal jobs and it's completely normal to, to train 12 times a week on top of a job yeah and so I think having that built in as a oh this is a normal thing kind of has helped a lot mm. So I tell you something for me about Johnny's story that makes it even more amazing is that you could look at it objectively and say that both times were a failure, but it doesn't feel like that to me. Okay. Do you see what I mean? You know, the what first time he didn't that... complete uh, in the team, he never didn't get on the score sheet. You know, the score sheet will say DNF. If anyone goes back and says, "Oh, you know, let's look at the results," it'll say, you know, did not That's finish. And then the second time as well. You know, you had to pull out of the race. No, for me, listening to this, it's much less about the event itself. It's about his approach to the event. Yeah, the journey. And it's just, you know, listening to to him talking about how disciplined he was and his commitment to it. And that that is a mindset that is, in one side, really admirable, but I would also argue extremely sacrificial... Yeah, and you have to sacrifice a lot. Yeah, and he was more than prepared to to give up on what I would consider, you know, normal life. So to be fair, you know, he was talking about how he tried to recreate the training and he had magic, he said, was the way he said it. So um, to be fair, uh, earlier on in the discussion when I we were just catching up, it kind of seemed that the stars had aligned for him at that particular time because he'd taken a job in Edinburgh, but his girlfriend was still in London. Mm-hmm. She, her job hadn't started in Edinburgh yet and was going to take about 12 months to do it type thing. Um, he'd moved back in with his mum and dad temporarily. So, you know, I imagine if you sort of look at it and say, OK, well, trying to do this in a normal life, you know, when I went, he was just sort of fixing his house up. Right, Whereas at okay. the time, he didn't have any of those commitments. His girlfriend was down south. You know, he said to me that he had a job that was, he was working at Edinburgh University and it was very kind of safe and secure and it, it was very much like nine till five. No one expected him to work until eight. Okay. So the stars kind of aligned, but you're absolutely right that, you know, he's not going out after work on the beers. I, I, well, and I'm glad you brought the girlfriend sort of thing because I was thinking, well, where would he fit one of those in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> around all this training? And also, how would she feel about this? Yeah, yeah. But it's, um, it's very much more how he approached the training for me than the event itself when yeah. I listen to this. Hugely, in terms of hugely dedicated. what I find most extraordinary. Yeah. 
So you're not going to be signing up for the event anytime soon? And may- maybe not this year. Or perhaps... Ever. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> so what are we going to take for our uh, extraordinary toolkit? Okay, well, for me, Johnny was very regimented in his approach, very organised, very structured. Yeah, so he says have a plan and or have a goal and know what you need to do to achieve yeah. that goal and make a plan. Yeah, and consistency was also something that he really sort of hammered down there. He said uh, the power of habit making something normal yeah yeah and it, that kind of came out from talking about his experience of rowing and actually i completely agree with this that's my experience and i you know uh johnny started rowing age 11 i started age like 23 and I only rowed for three years but for, even for me i got that same uh drive adjustment commitment. to what you consider to be normal okay i don't think it's drive or commitment i don't think if you think this is normal thing for you to be doing that's not drive or commitment no, you're right. It's just you know, it's just normal. It's just what you do. And is it the group of people? Is it the sport itself? Is it the, the community that it creates? So or I is think it just a, a sport that like that requires that sort of input. To yeah, that, I think that's what is required if you want to to win at the sport, and, and actually if you want to continue to enjoy. So I I play football badly, and I love playing football. It doesn't matter that I'm playing it badly. Rowing badly is not fun. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. that makes sense. But but you can't row well. Without, a certain Without doing of, that amount okay. of yeah, training. That makes recently. sense. So someone who is not a rower, I'm beginning to get a clearer picture yeah. of, in order to enjoy it, you need to you be need of to a certain be fit standard. And yeah. you need to be good, yeah. And I think that when, you, when it becomes normalised like that, it's not effort. That's okay. just what you do. Well, it's like even when he talks about his time in Tokyo, even for fun on the weekends. Yeah, sleeping by the side of the it, road. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's interesting how people... <laughs> You know, people's different opinions of what, what maybe fun is. Well, yeah. Because that sounds like a punishment. I like the, the going cycling bit sounds great to me. I, yeah, I'm not sure about sleeping on the well, You know, he said something else earlier that it was more about the journey and then started talking about sleeping at the side of the road. Um, so the destination certainly wasn't a part of his, yeah, his goal yeah. either. It was the, the going, not the getting there. Yeah. Which again is quite a unique mindset yes and what did you think about um about the discussion about the peak and pit we talked we talked about how is it to do with the the relative space from the highs and the lows oh i like that i liked how you how you um yeah <laughs> how you pictured that so it is all relative really because if you're isolating the highest and lowest point of this particular experience then um you know the highest point there compared to the rest of your lifetime of experience, potentially may not peak yeah. what would maybe be considered a relatively bad day yeah. in normal life. And Jonathan said it was the ridiculousness. <laughs> it's just fine, which, which I would consider, yeah, sleeping by the side of the road on a roll mat is ridiculous. But, you know, he said, talked about being in this car park in this, you know, dodgy part of town and sort of completely naked, Cleaning himself, but... Yeah, and do you know what? It's really interesting as a woman listening to this because, I mean, I don't know if any females participate in the DC. Uh, last year, it was won by Fiona Colbinger. Really? Yeah. Because I do find, you know, he, he does, does find himself in some relatively dark, dingy corners that I would consider quite risky. You, do you know what? You're absolutely right. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. As a that. six foot seven 
man, I think he would experience the race really differently to... Uh, and Fiona, I think, is quite little as well. You're right. interesting. Maybe we need to speak to Fiona. We absolutely need to speak to Fiona. That's a really, really good point. I hadn't even thought about that. You, know. no, you wouldn't, John. Because... No, you're quite right. Patriarchy. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm trying, though. Um, so in our toolbox, then, we're going to put the power of habit. Power of habit, for sure. And how it normalises. And no- power of habit and normalising the extraordinary, if you like. Mm-hmm. And we're going to put in set a goal. Yeah. And make a plan. Really interesting. Yes, so he's uh, he's done a few other races since. He's still back on the bike. He's still racing. It didn't put him off. Um, I mean, I want to know what happened to his feet. I mean, are they back oh, to feet, normal? Yeah, he was standing on them when I spoke to him. Okay, anyway, good. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would have been a nice one for the girlfriend to have to check out on arrival. Yeah. He said he didn't wear shoes for three months. No, they they look pretty grim, didn't they? <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Extraordinariness, hosted by Joanne Spence and myself, John Harmon. Music was by Coma Media from Pixabay. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please tell someone else about it. Like the podcast, subscribe, all those things can help us know that you're enjoying what we're making and we'll continue to make it. Once again, thanks for listening and check back for more episodes of Extraordinariness.